Bibles and to turn with me to Mark chapter 9. And we will be considering this Lord's Day, the first 13 verses. Mark 9 verses 1 through 13. The kingdom of Christ is of an entirely different nature than that of political kingdoms of the earth. Its origin is not of man, but of the spirit, and therefore it is called a spiritual kingdom because it is the Holy Spirit that brings it about. In fact, the Lord Jesus in John 18, verse 36, stands before Pilate and he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from hence, not from this world. Thus it is also called, for that reason, the kingdom of heaven. Not that it doesn't have anything to do with earth, not that it is not present here upon the earth, but that its origin and the essence of this kingdom is not political. It is spiritual. It is of the Holy Spirit. The subjects of Christ's kingdom are spiritual in nature. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2.15, we see that the natural man is contrasted with the spiritual man, the man who is born of the Spirit. The unique blessings of this kingdom consist not in the riches and attainments of this world, although the Lord Jesus does allow us in His good providence many blessings of this world. That is not the unique blessing of His kingdom. The unique blessings of His kingdom are all the spiritual blessings that are given to us in heavenly places in Christ. In Romans 14.17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. The weapons of Christ's kingdom are not of this world but rather are spiritual, of the Holy Spirit. According to 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God. And the king of this kingdom reigns forever and shall conquer all his enemies. In Luke 1.33, we read of Christ, and He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of His kingdom there shall be no end. As we have noted in previous sermons, the disciples of Christ, along with many of those in Israel at that time, had in mind a political kingdom in Jerusalem as their idea of the messianic kingdom. The exaltation of Israel over all nations, like many dispensationalists today, was the view of many in Israel at that particular time in history. It's hard to imagine the all-pervasive influence this had in the interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures. But this political view of Messiah's kingdom explains why the disciples were so slow to comprehend a suffering, crucified Savior. But dear ones, this theme of Christ's sacrifice is the unfolding of the greatest love story ever told. How the holy God set His love upon a wicked, unfaithful harlot 
and covenanted by His grace to make her His bride and to remove from her every contemptible stain of sin by coming in the likeness of flesh and by satisfying the infinite justice of God against her through enduring the shame of the cross and the wrath of God for her. Dear ones, there is no love story upon earth that can compare to the divine love story found in the pages of Scripture. And this Lord's Day we shall see how the Lord continues in love and patience to prepare His slow disciples for His imminent death by revealing to them the spiritual nature of His kingdom. The main points of the sermon this Lord's Day are the following. Number one, a prophecy of the kingdom. Mark 9.1 Number two, a foreshadowing of the kingdom in Mark 9, verses 2 through 10. And number three, a question about the kingdom in Mark 9, verses 11 through 13. So let us consider, first of all, a prophecy of the kingdom. Look with me at Mark 9, 1. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. In the previous sermon, there in Mark 8, verses 31 through 33, the Lord began to teach His disciples very explicitly that He would suffer, that He would be rejected, and that He would be crucified and rise again after three days. And you'll remember that Peter rebuked the Lord for these particular statements. But Peter then was himself severely rebuked by the Lord for for receiving and taking in the thoughts of men and the doctrines of men rather than the doctrine of Christ. And then we saw in Mark 8.34, Christ addresses not only His disciples, but there's a slight transition there in Mark 8.34, and He invites the larger crowd to hear what He has to say about the cost of following Him the price that we will have to pay if we are going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It won't be easy. The Lord is not promising us ivory palaces here upon the earth. The Lord is calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him. And so, when we read in Mark 9.1, and He said unto them, we should understand that the them is not merely the disciples, but it's this larger group of people as well. The disciples and this crowd that is there with Him. Christ had just mentioned in Mark 8.38, if you just look at the previous verse, that His kingdom is coming, the kingdom of His glory is coming at the end of the world, wherein there will be a time of judgment that is certainly implied by the words that He speaks in Mark 8.38. When it says, When He cometh in the glory of His Father with the holy angels, And now the Lord 
in Mark 9, 1-13, demonstrates that the essential nature of that future kingdom of glory, that is, that heavenly kingdom, is the same essential nature of His present kingdom of grace. It is of a spiritual nature. It is of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we ought not to understand when we think of spiritual as not non-physical, I mean, as, as being something completely immaterial, because the Lord, by His Spirit, works in material beings, fleshly beings. The Lord, by His Spirit, uses material and physical means of grace. But we understand that all that Christ accomplishes by His Spirit, the essence of that is not the ordinances. The essence of that is not that which is outward and material. The essence is that of the Spirit of God performing the work of God's salvation in our lives. That's the essence There certainly are differences as to administration and degree of sanctification between the present kingdom of grace and the future kingdom of glory, that heavenly kingdom. But there is no difference, dear ones, as to the spiritual nature of both of these aspects of Christ's kingdom. Now as we come to Mark 9.1, the Lord prophesies concerning the power that would accompany His kingdom. He says, till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. They will not taste of death. There are certain ones present who will not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. <clears throat> Since He is a king to whom has been given all power in heaven and on earth, according to Matthew 28:18, the manifestation of His rule would also demonstrate His kingly power in ways I would submit to you were, that were not expected by the disciples of Christ because they merely had in mind, again, a political reign of power on behalf of the Messiah. That was primarily what they saw, the subjugation of the Romans, the conquering of the enemies of Israel. Israel exalted as the chief nation. And so these demonstrations of power of Christ's kingdom that are here prophesied concerning by Christ, <clears throat> the disciples would not been, have been attuned to. They would not have understood. Well, you can imagine what this prophecy conjured up in the disciples' minds with their worldly political view of Christ's kingdom. They, again, no doubt, hearing about some of you are going to be living and not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. Again, just keep in mind what they're going to be thinking about Israel, about Christ sitting upon the throne in Jerusalem, upon David's throne. And since this did not happen within the lifetime of those gathered before the Lord, to what did this prophecy refer? What does this prophecy mean? Well, let me give you three very good options as to what this prophecy means. Some have seen the fulfillment of this prophecy in the transfiguration of Christ, which is contained in the next few verses where there is indeed manifested a powerful display of Christ's glory. 
to such an extent that the disciples who witnessed it were exceedingly fearful. It says in Mark 9.6. Secondly, others have viewed the fulfillment of this prophecy in the miraculous signs and wonders that were given to the apostles on the day of Pentecost and which characterized their ministry within Christ's kingdom. Now, there can be no doubt that such a powerful exhibition of Christ's kingly authority is evidenced in those amazing events. In Acts 1.8, the Lord Jesus says this before he ascends into heaven, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And then in Peter's sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verses 33 and following, listen to this explanation as to why these Miraculous signs have been given on the day of Pentecost. Peter says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The display of those particular gifts, those powerful gifts on the day of Pentecost, was and evidence that Jesus Christ had been coronated. That Jesus had ascended to the throne. That He was reigning. And this was, again, a tangible evidence of that actual installation in heaven. Now, thirdly, still others have looked upon the fulfillment of this prophecy in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, whereby Christ, by His kingly power, brought an evidence that Israel, as a covenanted nation, was for the present time excommunicated from the kingdom of Christ. You remember the words which we will be considering as we work through the Gospel of Mark. But in Mark 14, verse 62, as the Lord appears before the high priest being tried there at that kangaroo court, he is asked, Are thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And the Lord says, I am and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. That phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven. Sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. <clears throat> Prophetically, dear ones, clouds are called the Lord's royal chariot upon which he rides in demonstration of his royal power. As we see in Psalm 104, verse 3, there it says that the clouds are God's chariot. We read in Isaiah 19:1 that the Lord comes with clouds, riding upon the clouds to bring his royal judgment upon Egypt. In Daniel 7.13, it speaks of the Son of Man coming with the clouds, presenting Himself before the Ancient of Days, coming in His royal chariot, the clouds, with all of His kingly authority. And in Matthew 24.30, there we read... <clears throat> 
concerning the Lord coming. It says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, coming to judge, bringing his judgment, his vengeance. Many good scholars, many faithful men have also seen a reference here in Mark chapter 9 verse 1 to this kingdom coming with power and God bringing, Christ bringing his vengeance even upon Israel. As you can see, there are good reasons that might be stated for each of these views. And I, for one, do not know why it is necessary to maintain one view to the exclusion of the other two. Therefore, I would propose that Christ prophesied that some standing there would not die until they had seen the manifestation of his kingdom with power in his royal transfiguration, in his royal outpouring of gifts to his church and in his royal coming and pouring forth vengeance upon his enemies in the destruction of Jerusalem. Dear ones, by similar means, the Lord continues to show the power of his kingdom, even today. For the Spirit illuminates our mind and our understanding so that the Lord Jesus Christ is transfigured before our spiritual eyes from a mere ordinary man and into the God-man who bestows saving grace upon His elect. There is a transfiguration that occurs in our mind and our understanding by way of God's work of the Spirit in our lives. Christ still graciously bestows upon His church gifted officers and ordinances by which He rules and sustains His spiritual kingdom, even as He poured out His gifts upon the church in Acts 2. So the Lord continues to give His gifts to His church. And Christ yet restrains, even today, and conquers all His and our enemies. Christ yet governs even the wars, the nations, subduing his enemies unto himself. If you want to follow up on that particular truth, perhaps this afternoon, this evening, at home, fathers, mothers, Go over yourselves and go over with your children. Larger Catechism, question 45. Dear ones, Jesus Christ is the same King to us as He was shown to be by the fulfillments of this prophecy within that generation. The power of His kingdom is yet visible for all to see who have the spiritual eyes to see. If you cannot see these things that I have spoken of today, if Jesus has not been transfigured in your mind, if you do not see the wonderful gifts which King Jesus has bestowed upon His church, if you do not see King Jesus in His royal vengeance pouring it out upon the nations today, it is because you have not been born again. Because it requires spiritual eyes to see these truths, and to understand them. Jesus said in John 3, 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it in all of its operations, in all of its glory. He cannot see it, nor can he understand it. Our second main point, a foreshadowing of the kingdom. In Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, 
And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. <clears throat> and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, uh, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man of what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. <coughs> Six days after this prophecy, the Lord takes with him three witnesses, Peter, James, and John, to see a foreshadowing of the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom so as to prepare them for his death and resurrection, which would secure all of the blessings of the kingdom for his people. There upon a high mountain, the Lord is transfigured before these witnesses. Now, what did Peter, James, and John witness? Well, first, <clears throat> they saw the clothing and the countenance of the Lord become like a dazzling light. Not a light that was shining upon Christ from some outward source as if it was a spotlight upon Him, but a light that was emanating from Christ Himself. In Mark 9.3 it says, And His raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. Now, this must have been so spectacular to witness inasmuch as this seems to have occurred against the backdrop of the darkness of night. For when we turn to the parallel account in Luke 9, verse 32, there we read, But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. When it says there, <clears throat> they were heavy with sleep, it means that it was time to go to bed. It was nighttime. They were fighting drowsiness. Now, I think that the King James Version at this point uh, has an unfortunate um, rendering of the words when it says, and when they were awake. For it is not the meaning that they were asleep and awakened that is communicated by that particular word, but rather the idea of the word is that they watched through. Two words, it's a, a preposition, through, on the front of the word, and the word to watch. They watched through. They fought to stay awake. And they did. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they actually fell asleep. They watched through is actually the meaning of the word that's communicated there. So they didn't miss part of the, what was going on up there. They were just very, very drowsy. But that would infer again that this occurred at night. Now, can you imagine... This type of light emanating from Christ against the backdrop 
of darkness. What a sight that must have been to behold. No wonder the disciples were exceedingly fearful, according to Mark 9.6. Apparently, there was no change in the appearance of Christ so that He took on some different form, so that He didn't look like Christ, but merely in the, the exceeding brightness of the light that was coming from Him. Here for a brief time, the, the curtain, as it were, the veil was pulled back so that a faint glimmer of the power of His glory might be seen by these witnesses. This heavenly display of glory was intended to show them, the disciples, these three disciples, the heavenly nature of Christ's kingdom. It was intended to show them a part of Christ's kingdom that they didn't realize and understand up to this point. They were still so fixed upon this, this political idea of Christ's kingdom. They didn't see the glory, the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom that was evident in this transfiguration of Christ. The second thing that they witnessed is that they witnessed the appearance of two Old Testament saints, Moses and Elijah. Now, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Well, we're not told how they knew, whether it was by Christ himself or whether by some inward revelation, but they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah did not appear with Christ here, so as to reign with him in some earthly political kingdom. Moses and Elijah uh, represent the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. Here we see, dear ones, the continuity of the Old Testament with that of the New Testament. In that the law and the prophets pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ and are completely and are complete only in Jesus Christ. They're not complete without Christ. They're insufficient without Christ. There is no covenant of grace without Christ. Without Christ, it is a covenant of works which can only damn and curse anyone. But with Christ as the focal point of which the law and the prophets point, we see the covenant of grace. Here we see that Christ was the Savior and the Redeemer of Moses and Elijah, as well as He was of Peter and James and John and of all of those who embrace Him by faith alone. Here we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached by Moses and Elijah to Israel of old. For here they appear with the Lord Jesus Christ talking with them about his death. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter even says so much. 1 Peter 1.11 speaks of the prophets from old says, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Beloved, Christ alone has always been and will always be the Savior of His people. There are not, there cannot be two ways of being saved. There is only one way through Jesus Christ. And now that He has come and has exhibited His great love by His suffering, by His rejection, and by His death, how much more are we responsible to receive Him than any in the Old Testament? They were responsible to receive Christ who is foreshadowed in the Law and the Prophets. 
But how much more we are responsible to receive Him. How much more, dear ones, we deserve the condemnation of God if we neglect so great a salvation. I encourage you today, receive the Lord Jesus Christ who is our prophet, priest, and king. Thirdly, what did Peter, James, and John hear as Moses and Elijah spoke with the transfigured Christ? Well, we must look at the parallel account in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, to hear of the substance of that conversation. And there we find that it says, who appeared in glory, speaking of Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. What were they talking about? They were talking about Christ's death that was soon to come. It was imminent. They spoke concerning that which would be shortly fulfilled in Jerusalem. For the conversation, dear ones, and the praise of the saints in heaven, guess what it revolves around? It revolves around their mediator. As we have read in Revelation chapter 5, even today, worthy art thou to take the book. Only thou art worthy. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed thy people unto thyself. How was it accomplished? It was accomplished through his death. Through his suffering, through his rejection. And because that's the theme to which the Old Testament points in the covenant of grace looks forward to is the accomplishment of this covenant through Christ's death upon the cross. That's what the saints in heaven were talking about, apparently. And as these two had the opportunity to speak with Christ here upon the earth, that's what they spoke with him concerning his soon to come death. <clears throat> you see, Moses and Elijah had a vested interest in Christ's death as well as the disciples of Christ. The disciples had clearly heard from the mouth of Christ about a week earlier that he was to suffer, that he was to be rejected and to be killed. And now Moses and Elijah appear as witnesses to further confirm that these events are about to take place. Again, for the benefit and the profit of these so slow-to-learn disciples, the Lord brings about this mighty transfiguration and allows them to overhear this conversation going on between Moses and Elijah with Christ about his death. This again shows the purpose of Christ's transfiguration and that it was of a spiritual nature. It did not have a political agenda. It had a spiritual agenda to promote the spiritual kingdom of Christ through His death and His resurrection. Fourthly, now just as Moses and Elijah were about to depart from the Lord, according to Luke 9.33, Peter the impetuous and rash one speaks up, not knowing what to say, but says anyway, in Mark 9.5, Master, it is good for us to be here let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Dear ones, it is not 
a virtue to always have something to say in any given situation. Sometimes it is a virtue to have nothing to say. In fact, a lot of times it is a virtue to have nothing to say. Listen to Proverbs 17:28. Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. And he that shutteth his lips is esteemed a man of understanding. Peter's response to build three wooden tabernacles, probably like they would use uh, at the Feast of Tabernacles. They would build these little shelters and abide within them during the, the time of the feast. This may be what Peter was referring to, to build these tabernacles. <clears throat> Upon this mountain where the transfiguration occurred, this shows a continued ignorance of the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom on Peter's part. That is, to establish his rule by means of his rejection, death, and his resurrection. Furthermore, Peter's response seems to imply prophetic equality of Moses and Elijah with that of Christ. Let's just build them all three tabernacles here. When in reality, Moses and Elijah were inspired by the prophetic spirit of Jesus, according to 1 Peter 1.11. Mr. Calvin observes concerning Peter's request the following. But his desire was foolish, first because he did not comprehend the design of the vision, secondly because he absurdly put the servants on a level with their Lord, and thirdly he was mistaken in proposing to build fading tabernacles for men who had been already admitted to the glory of heaven and of the angels. See what comes of speaking when we don't know what we're talking about? If we really applied that principle, we'd do a lot more listening, each one of us, and a whole lot less speaking, at least speaking as if we knew what we were talking about. Moses and Elijah, as great men of the faith as they were, were yet only men. They, like John the Baptist, could say, He must increase, but we must decrease. You know, this is again, dear ones, a reminder that our divine faith and trust cannot be in man or in man's resources, whether in man's money, whether in man's gifts and graces, our divine faith cannot be in a church. Our divine faith cannot be in a pastor or elders or in an assembly of divines. Our divine, our, our divine faith, dear ones, cannot be in any outward ordinance, even those ordinances which have been given to us by Christ. Nor can our divine faith be in any human confessional standard. Although these are, dear ones, divinely appointed means by which Christ does bless His church, Christ and Christ alone is King of His kingdom. And He alone is worthy of our faith and our worship. Not Elijah and Moses. Not Rutherford and Gillespie, but Christ alone is worthy of our trust, our faith, and our worship. Fifthly, then immediately after Peter's foolish words, there appears the Shekinah glory cloud that sat between the cherubim, and from it comes the voice of God the Father this is my beloved Son. Hear 
him. Not Moses and Elijah as mere men. Hear him because it is he who has inspired them to speak on his behalf. Peter spoke of this specific incident here on the Mount of Transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. When he said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his royal glory, For we receive from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, the glory cloud, when that voice came from this cloud, the glory cloud. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. The words that are spoken here by the Father first give God's divine approbation of His Son so as to confirm that approbation, that approval, that affection that God has for His only begotten Son. That was confirmed by these words to the the apostles. But secondly, these words... By these words, God's divine authorization is also made known that it is Christ who is exalted above all, even above Moses and Elijah. Christ is the teacher of the church. Christ is the master of the church. Christ is the prophet of the church. And as our prophet, we are not to picture him or to inscribe him in the form of some image, but rather we are, according to God, to hear him. Pictures and images of Christ have no authorization at all in God's Word, any more than do pictures of the Father or of the Holy Spirit. You see, God may choose to reveal Himself by means of a cloud, a dove, or as a man. But we have no warrant to represent with our finite, fallible hands the manifestation of the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. So teaches the Word of God in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and in our larger catechism, question 109. As our prophet, we are to teach, therefore, and profess, and to believe only that which comes from the mouth of Christ, from the Scriptures. In Matthew 18.20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, the Lord Jesus says. For dear ones, without Christ, we can truly know nothing. Without Christ, we can truly do nothing that pleases Him. Without Christ, we are complete fools, knowing nothing in the truest sense, knowing nothing about salvation and wisdom. For true knowledge is that which is given by Christ and applied by Christ to our life. And after this voice, the disciples, it says, looked up and there was only Jesus. Again, what an object lesson. They hear the voice of God the Father. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. And gone are Moses and Elijah. And there is Jesus alone. 
And still, as we read verses 9 and 10, as they come down from the mountain, these poor, poor disciples still do not understand the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom at this point. For they say, And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And you can understand, with their present understanding and knowledge, they didn't have the ability to explain what they had seen with the right understanding. And they kept that saying within with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. They didn't understand the rising of the dead because they didn't understand. Even though they heard Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about it, they didn't understand the crucifixion, the suffering, and the rejection. How could they understand about the resurrection if they couldn't understand the, the crucifixion? And yet the Lord continues to patiently instruct and teach his disciples. Again, what an encouragement to us about the patience of our Lord with us. To instruct us through all of our weaknesses. Do we have the sincere heart? Do we have, dear ones, a willingness to hear him even though we're slow to learn do we really desire to hear Him? That's what the Lord is looking for. A brokenness. A contriteness. A willingness to, to fear Him. To tremble before His Word. And to seek and to ask Him, Lord, give us understanding of Your Word. And we will obey it. We will follow it. Finally, Number three, the main, third main point, a question about the kingdom. Verses 11 through 13 of Mark chapter 9. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And he answered and told them, Elijah verily cometh first and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be set at naught. But I say unto you that Elijah is indeed come. And they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. <clears throat> Having just witnessed Elijah speaking with Christ, raised a question in the minds of Peter, James, and John. No doubt what was going through their mind is, since you are the Messiah... And since Elijah is to come before the Messiah, according to Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where is he? Where's Elijah? Here again, an earthly, worldly idea had influenced the scribes who taught that Elijah must in person come before the Messiah, and many in Israel apparently had been influenced by this view as well. But here again, the Lord patiently explains the spiritual nature of His kingdom by showing them that Elijah has indeed already come in John the Baptist. For John came in the Spirit and in the power of of Elijah, according to Luke one seventeen, Here we find that the Lord says in Mark chapter 9, He speaks of how it is written of the Son of Man that He must suffer many things and be said at naught. Then He says concerning Elijah, who has come, that they have done whatsoever they wanted to Him as well. What they had done to Elijah, the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, so they would do to the Lord Jesus himself. They have done what they listed, what they wanted to do to him. Dear ones, we're left with this thought as we conclude today. 
There's such a worldly attitude that prevails today in regard to the nature of Christ's kingdom, even amongst professing Christians. It was true in the time of Christ, in the visible church at that time, and it is certainly true today. Outward prosperity and physical comfort are the prevailing themes concerning the nature of Christ's kingdom in so many of the pulpits today. You want to be physically and materially blessed, simply come to Christ or believe Christ or take Christ and it is an automatic type of a thing that you can claim. From Christ reigning physically upon the earth in Jerusalem for a thousand years, which is taught by various professing Christian churches, which is a very earthly, again, a very worldly view of the kingdom of Christ to the total silence concerning persecution, suffering for Christ, being maligned for Christ, seeking miraculous signs as being continual evidences that Christ's kingdom is come. We see this being taught and practiced in churches all of the time. But dear ones, when we see that which is of the nature of Christ's kingdom, which we have looked at today, it is that which promotes the spiritual well-being of Christ's church. That which draws them closer to Jesus Christ. And believe me, it is not always prosperity. And most of the time, it is not prosperity that draws us closer to Christ but rather affliction and tribulation and persecution for Christ's sake that promotes the spiritual ends of Christ's kingdom, which are communion with Jesus Christ, enjoying Christ. When I read a passage, and you can look up some of these passages... But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-13, through 13, there the Apostle Paul chides the Corinthians because they believed they were already reigning. And Paul is in effect saying, well, if you're reigning, you're reigning without me. How is it that you're reigning? Look at what the Apostles, he says, we're the offscarring of the earth. We're treated as filth. And how is it that you're reigning? We're suffering. We're dying daily. How is it that you think you're reigning? Certainly there is a spiritual sense in which we reign with Christ. There is a sense in which because Christ rules and controls all, we do reign with Him. Because we are heirs of all that Christ has. Joint heirs with Him. We do reign with Him. But as to material prosperity, as to absence of affliction and tribulation and suffering, no. In times of Reformation, yes. As in times of National Reformation, yes, there will be correspondingly times of national prosperity. But in times of national apostasy, Those who would live faithfully for the Lord can expect quite the opposite. They can expect persecution and suffering for Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.12, Lord says, or Paul says, on behalf of the Lord, if we would reign with Him, we must suffer with Him. Romans chapter 8 verses 16 through 17. If we would be glorified with Him, we must suffer with Him. 
Read 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 this evening as well to get a sense of the nature of the kingdom, suffering for Christ's sake. Let us not forget, dear ones, that our chief and highest goal in the kingdom of Christ is to commune with Christ. Not only to commune with Him in the power of His resurrection, but to commune with Him in the, in the fellowship of His sufferings. According to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, And by this means, dear ones, even by suffering, the kingdom of Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the gospel of salvation, continues to grow and to increase and to multiply. Not by our means, but by His means. His own appointed means. He prospers His church. And we will understand and we will see it ever so clearly if we understand the true nature of His kingdom. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be taught by the Teacher. To hear from Thy Word even this day what Jesus says unto His church. O Lord our God, we pray that Thou would keep us from being misled and deceived by the various false gospels that are present in the world today, many of which promise so much by way of prosperity. And O Lord, in order to blind those who are deceived, it is true that Thou mayest even with many of these grant them the prosperity that they deceive, but not to their salvation, even unto their destruction. And even with physical healing, those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, Thou dost grant healing as a means of deception as well in their case. But, O Lord our God, we will not be led by our sight. We will be led by Thy revealed will as to the nature of the kingdom. And we will rejoice if Thou dost heal. We will rejoice if Thou dost bless with material prosperity. And we will, we will attribute all of these blessings to Jesus Christ. But, O Lord, we will as well rejoice if we suffer for the sake of Christ if we die for the sake of Christ, if we're afflicted in our, in our health for the sake of Christ, we will rejoice as well. This is not a gospel that Lord will sell well amongst mo most people of the world. This gospel of prosperity will sell very well, though. We pray, Father, that Thou would seal our hearts this day to follow Thy truth and to remember that what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and but to lose his soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his own soul? O Lord, drive us to the Lord Jesus today Drive us to receive from Him all that we need to be faithful and to live for Him. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www. 
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.